Welcome to episode 15 of the Double Double. My name is Kelly Hogan and joining me on the other end, David Dixon. David, what's up? What's going on, Kelly? It's a very windy day here, Thursday, April 4th in Middletown, Connecticut, but we're getting by. The sun is out, hoops is on, and doesn't get much better than that. Summer is approaching. So today we're going to talk NBA awards, but first, Dave, let's talk a little college hoops. We had an excellent slate of Elite Eight games, and really Sweet 16 as well. It was just an overall great weekend of basketball. The Final Four is set, and Duke isn't there. What happened to the Blue Devils? Yeah, you know, I always thought that Duke was the best team in the country, but it was really interesting watching them in the tournament against other just exceptional teams that they clearly were the team that had the best talent but not the best basketball team. And I know that that has been repeated by a lot of basketball experts who are paid a lot more money than I am to talk about this stuff. And it's just clear that they are so reliant on Zion and RJ to basically do everything that they just didn't have that much depth the way that a lot of other really good March Madness teams do. So I personally thought that they should have lost to UCF. UCF was better than them deeper i thought they were better coach in that game they had a better strategy because when it came down to it i mean can you really blame coach k for being for his strategy being zion go do something like that's what i would do but i felt like duke just kept getting lucky and kept getting lucky and the part for me is you are never sad that duke is out or feel bad for when duke loses because they're the quote-unquote bad guys in college basketball and no one's supposed to like them. But I wish we could have gotten just two more games of watching Zion in college basketball just because he's so exciting, so much fun to watch, plays with so much joy. That That's the biggest takeaway I have is just that they just, maybe they just weren't that good this year. And we just, they're just so good because Zion and RJ are so good. They certainly should have lost the UCF, like you said, and you can even make the argument that they should have lost to Virginia Tech. That was a hell of an inbounds play that Buzz Williams drew up, and the kid just kind of blew the layup. But Duke, I, I don't, I'm not sure they really got better this season. They had kind of peaked game one. You knew what they were all season. They've lacked shooters, and we've, we've talked about that before. But in the past, you know, they've had guys like Matt Jones and Quinn Cook and, and Luke Kennard and Grayson Allen and these dudes who are able to hit big shots. I mean, Trey Jones shot it well against Virginia Tech, but that was certainly an outlier. They all season, they just did not have shooters they could rely upon. And Cam Reddish was billed up as a top five pick. And we can talk about that closer to draft, but he hurt his stock probably just as much as anyone in the country this season. Just listen to this stat. So Duke lost three games this year that Zion played in. In those three games, R.J. Barrett went 0 for 9 in the final minute, and the rest of the team took three total shots, Zion taking one. So when, when it came to crunch time, I'm not sure if it was you know R.J. Barrett. He just put blinders on and decided to take matters into his own hands. But regardless of why that was the case, it wasn't successful. And while... You and I, we would have loved to have seen Duke continue on playing if for no other reason than to get another opportunity to watch Zion before he goes to the pros. It's kind of a bummer that they they got knocked out. Yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing about RJ is that you point out, obviously, that stat's a little misleading because obviously in the games that they lose, it means that they 
didn't play that well. And that so of course RJ Barrett was gonna miss shots in games that Duke lost because otherwise if he made those shots, Duke probably would have won. But I just think that it's really interesting how if you go through their schedule throughout the whole uh season, is that they didn't play really that many close games. They obviously played a very intense ACC schedule, but they were never really down a lot in a lot of games and play against teams that I, that I feel like weren't afraid of them. And that, cause I feel like Zion and RJ and the phenomena of Duke definitely intimidates a lot of teams. But then when they went up against teams that just said, we're not afraid of you guys and we're going to attack you because we, we realize, Hey, Zion may have 30 and have eight dunks, but you guys are very beatable. And I think that they just ran into a Michigan State team that is really good, upperclassman team, extremely well coached, and just said, we're not afraid of you guys, and we're going to beat you because we are actually better than you. You may have the best two players, but we're a better basketball team. I think you really have to give Tom Izzo and Michigan State credit because they certainly weren't the more talented team on the court on Sunday, but they got it done. They kind of, you know, their strategy was to let Zion and, rj kind of get theirs and negate everyone else and they they were successful in doing that and it might be a bit of recency bias but i think cassius winston is as good of a college point guard as i can remember his jump shot is not totally there but just in terms of leading a team at the collegiate level and what he brings to the table you know in the past five years or so i can't i can't recall anyone that i would take over him yeah you you know it's really interesting that you you talk about michigan state because it just feels like every three to four years they do this that they just get to the final four with a team that's obviously very good and that they are you know the giant killers of college basketball that Izzo just finds a way to beat these guys and he's never really talked about as the best coaches because he doesn't recruit necessarily in the same way that some of the other schools do and Bill Self and Coach obviously Coach K and Roy Williams and obviously Calipari. But Izzo just builds programs and gets the job done and he's back to the final four. It's it's really incredible. But the next team I want to talk about is Virginia. I was in the belief that when they were down to in the one sixteen game again this year. I was in the belief that if Virginia had somehow lost that game back-to-back years, losing to a 16 seed, I was in the belief that you had to fire Tony Bennett. Stop. But they didn't, but they obviously rebounded, won that game, and made the Final Four, and now he'll probably be Coach of the Year again. So it's amazing what happens when you take care of business in the first round. I'm not willing to go that far. It would have been interesting if they would have lost that game because, I mean, losing to 16 once is a gut punch. Losing to them twice, thankfully that didn't happen. I'm I'm really fascinated by their matchup with Auburn because yeah. Auburn is a team that really impressed me. Harper, their point guard, he's as quick as any player I can remember with the ball in his hands. It almost looks like he, he's playing a different sport. The injury to Chumo Kiki is going to... That's gonna, I feel like that's going to hurt them this weekend. But Auburn's rolling right now. They beat Carolina and then Kentucky. That was a great game. But I, I think Auburn's ability to get out in transition might be able to negate 
Virginia's stout defense. The thing that concerns me about Virginia in this matchup is what Carson Edwards was able to do to them in that in that Elite Eight game, which is the pack line is a great fundamental defense because it prevents the ball from getting inside. You protect the paint, you protect the hoop, but elite shot makers, especially elite guard shot makers, can still score against the pack line. And Auburn has a lot of guys who can score and elite wing scores. The thing that is makes Auburn so interesting is that they play the type of style that probably means that they can beat Virginia and that they shoot tons of three-pointers, which are the shots when you think about it, if you pack everyone in to prevent layups, the three is going to be the shot that you want to take. And Auburn takes a lot of threes anyway, and they're good at it. You have Bryce Brown and Jared Harper, as you mentioned. So I'd be looking for them to have big games against Virginia. And the last thing I'll say about Auburn is that one of my uh, apartment mates actually said it was that when you watch them play together as a team, it's hard to tell if they like each other. Just the way that they sulk and they just yell at each other. They seemingly are never happy when someone makes a mistake. It's always like, pass me the ball. Like, why'd you shoot that? I was open. And yet somehow they're in the final four. This is going to be one of those games early. Once you just see how the pace is going, whether if it's a, you know if it's back and forth and it looks like it's ping pong out there, that definitely favors Auburn. And if it's kind of a slowed down, methodical type of game that plays in Virginia's hands. In the other semifinal, Michigan State's squaring off with Texas Tech. I think Michigan State is probably the better team, but I think Chris Beard is as good of a coach as, as there is in the country. How do you kind of see that that matchup unfolding? I think it's really interesting because, as you mentioned, Chris Beard is just such an exceptional coach and gets his team to play such good defense, and they just strangle the life out of you. They dominated Michigan. Michigan looked like a JV basketball team in that game and not the number two seed, and arguably they should have been a one seed. And Texas Tech literally just strangled and sucked the life out of them. And they dominated Gonzaga, not with any type of scheme or some type of you know, gimmicky approach. They just, just guarded. They just guarded them. And I feel like they're just going to guard Michigan State. Michigan State's going to have a really hard time scoring. And I think that they, since they have an NBA player – and Jarrett Culver, that Texas Tech is going to make the national championship game. And it's in, in crazy to think that somehow Texas Tech, you know, me and my dad have been talking about this the last few days, which is basically if, if you take any job in the country or, or any team right now, you could basically make the case of why aren't they doing better? Like, well, hey, if Texas Tech can make the Final Four, like you, like you guys can at least be – in that top half of your conference, they're going to make the national championship game. It's it's unbelievable. So I know I said Chris Beard's a hell of a coach and they have the edge there, but I do think Michigan State's going to win. They have more dogs. I, like I said, Cassius Winston is the best floor general in recent memory in college basketball. And while Chris Beard's a hell of a coach, Izzo is no slouch. I mean, this is his eighth Final Four. And when it's all said and done, I think Michigan State is going to square off with Auburn. And I think the experience of Tom Izzo paired with Cassius Winston. I think Spartans are the national champions. Really? Wow. See, I think it's going to be Texas Tech, Auburn. The ratings are going to be terrible. And Tech is going to win. And Chris Beard, you know, 
I, I don't know, man. It's just there's a great interview where after the Michigan game in the Sweet 16, he's on the court and he's talking, you know, about the game and what he's doing. And obviously with the short time to prepare for Gonzaga, probably the second best team in the country. How are you guys going to go about it? And Beard says, you know, well, you know, we're going to finish up our media responsibilities. We're going to handle everything here. And then we're going to go back to the hotel and have walkthrough. I'm thinking to myself, walkthrough? You just won the Sweet 16 game. It's probably going to be midnight, 1 a.m. When, when you leave that place and you go back to the hotel and walk through bef- and then have practice the next day and walk through some more. Like that, that's just the level of dedication and that just makes their program so fantastic and it's probably a big reason why they are where they are let's take a break and when we come back we're going to hand out some NBA awards All right, David, the 2018-2019 NBA season is coming to a close, and we are going to hand out some hardware. Where do you want to go first? I think we got to start with Coach of the Year. There's been a lot of great stories this year in the association. A lot of teams surprised, a lot of teams surprised for good and bad reasons. But one of the teams that I think deserves this award from their coaching staff and their head coach is Mike Malone of the Denver Nuggets. Getting his team to the playoffs this year while being perpetually, it felt like, stuck in that 9-8 game, 9-8 seed, you know, no man's land basically in NBA hoops to get them to the second seed in the West, currently 52-26, and I think that deserves the award just for what he's been able to do with the Nuggets. Obviously, their players are taking a big step, but it's also, hey, their coach has been able to guide them through this whole season and really challenge the Warriors for supremacy in the Western Conference regular season. I think it's really a three-man race, and I think Malone's definitely in the conversation. Ultimately, I feel like Bud in Milwaukee is probably going to win, Mike Budenholzer, just for the transformation the Bucks have made. But the one guy I want to pinpoint is Doc Rivers. They traded away Blake Griffin last season. Mid-season this year, they traded away their best player, Tobias Harris. And, you know, with these moves, they seemingly punted to to free agency in 2019. And he has them a borderline top five team in the Western Conference. They don't really have any alphas. They're starting a rookie point guard in Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who's coming into his own and reminds me a little bit of a young Rondo that can shoot. So that's that's exciting for the Clippers. And, I mean, just, just given their array of role players, they seem like a prime destination for a mega free agent this summer, be it Kawhi or, you know, maybe KD wants to go toe-to-toe with LeBron in L.A. I, I would advise against that. If he's going to leave Golden State, I'd recommend he go east. But, you know, Doc has done a terrific job, and I was – for a long time, I was skeptical of how good of a coach Doc was just because he didn't really have great success in Boston until KG and Ray Allen showed up. So I was always a little weary of that. And then he got to L.A. and he had 
JJ and Blake and Chris Paul and DeAndre Jordan. So he's always had some great players, but now that he has a team that while they do have some talent and some guys and, you know, Lou Williams, who I think is probably six man of the year and Montrez Harrell, who might be in that discussion as well. He really doesn't have a superstar who he's just rolling the ball out to and saying, go make plays. He's really had to do a, a good job coaching these guys and honing his rotations. And I think, you know, Bud will probably win, but my vote, I think I'd give it to Doc Rivers. Yeah, I think that that's a great pick and a great knowledge of the NBA because the Clippers were probably going to be in the lottery this year, I think a lot of people thought, going into the year. And especially after training Tobias Harris, I definitely thought they were destined for the for the lottery. But I think that in addition to Doc Rivers, a lot of credit goes to Jerry West for putting this team together. That Zubach trade that they made with the Lakers just keeps getting better and better and better. It really makes you question the Lakers in a lot of ways, but this isn't a Lakers conversation. This is a Clippers conversation. And I loved Shea Gilders Alexander. Check the text at Jordan Sears, at Harry Rafferty. Love that dude coming out of the draft. He's been fantastic. And if Trey Young and Luka Doncic weren't so dominant this year, he might be be in the he might be talked about more as the best point guard from last year's draft class and the clippers are built for the future i think Kawhi leonard if he decides to leave toronto will go to the clippers i think durant rumor has it is setting up his off the court business office and company in new york city so it feels like he's not going to be going to la but i think that if they add Kawhi to this team that would just be incredible because they already have a great young core. They're in the playoffs. They have the sixth seed. They could definitely challenge Houston in the first round. And I, I think that Doc Rivers doesn't get enough credit for the job that he's doing with such basically just all role guys who have completely bought in, know their role, know how to play the game. And it's proven they're 15 games over 500 as we're talking right now. And for the superstars who would consider Los Angeles, you see all these role guys and, Kind of what they're missing is that superstar. And to the Kawhi Leonard's of the world and whoever else might be considering, that is very, very attractive. So moving on to Defensive Player of the Year, my candidate, Rudy Gobert. I think he's going back-to-back. The Jazz have a top three defense in the NBA this year, and they don't have an all-star. Gobert should have been an all-star. I don't think there's any question about that. It's a travesty that he wasn't. And Mitchell, Donovan Mitchell is currently playing like one. But if you take Rudy Gobert and put him on just about any team in the NBA, they are instantly a top 10 defense. Just his ability to protect the rim and then switch out onto, you know, these guards in, a, in an NBA in which switching defenses are omnipresent. And if you, if you don't have a center that could switch out and guard some guys in the perimeter, your defense is in trouble. The Jazz are looking at home court potentially in the Western Conference playoffs. And the success in Utah starts and ends with Rudy Gobert and what he does on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, I'm right there with you with Gobert. He's obviously a fantastic player. Really knows how to defend the rim. That's that's definitely, you talked about his switchability on the perimeter, but I still go back to the fact that Gobert's biggest strength is his rim protection. And the way that he can block, and not just block, but alter shots around the rim is what makes him so valuable to that team because as we've played a lot of basketball, we both know 
how valuable it is to have that type of rim protection because then you can press up more and take some more chances on the perimeter going for steals and playing a lot closer defense when you know that, hey, even if I get beat, these guys got my back. They're going to challenge a shot, block it, change it, whatever it has to do for that ball not to go in. But since he's already won an award, and I feel like the NBA in a lot of cases doesn't like to give awards to the same people a lot of years. They like some variations. I got a center from the Eastern Conference, Joel Embiid. I know he puts up incredible offensive numbers, and this award is usually reserved to guys whose best attributes is on the defensive end of the floor, not offensively. But Embiid is still, I feel like, a great defensive player. He averages close to 14 rebounds a game. He's blocking almost two shots a game. He's a big body. By the way that the 76ers play, I think it's a little chicken and egg. Do they, they don't switch a lot of stuff, probably because Embiid can't really guard that well on the perimeter. But also, I feel like in the way that they guard the pick and roll, he does his job really well. And I think it's the same case. They're in the top three in the East in the playoffs and beats the best player on the team. I think he's their best defender. And he's definitely not going to win the MVP award. So I feel like this may be almost the award given out. Kind of, we know that you really are third in the MVP, but the top two guys are so much higher. We're going to give you defense player of the year. Joel Embiid is a fine defender. I don't really like the idea of like I understand your rationale and how they don't like giving awards to players multiple years in a row and we saw that with Kawhi and Draymond I think Kawhi did win back-to-back defensive player of the year awards but Draymond probably should have and for some of the reasons you laid out he didn't and so there's definitely some some logic behind what you're saying I just I just feel like Gobert it's it's a boring and it's a safe pick but the Jazz have been so dominant, their defense has just been lights out. I think the Jazz are really interesting because for the last few years, they're just so frustrating in that on paper and after seeing them at the end of the year, you're like, this team should win 55 games, maybe even 60. They should be top two or three in the West, make a run to the Western Conference Finals. One of the best coach, best put together teams. And it just feels like every year they start slow. And then it was like, what's wrong with the Jazz? And then they build up to it, and now they're fifth in the West, 18 games over 500. I feel like they're a team with a really high floor but a low ceiling. You kind of know exactly what you're going to get from them, in large part because Rudy Gobert's defensive dominance. You know that they're going to be competitive in a lot of games, but they kind of lack that punch. And Donovan Mitchell, is he, he could grow into that player, but right now he's just not very efficient and that kind of leaves leaves the Jazz in a tough situation because they do have cap space and they do have like a role of you know a three man kind of in the Joe Ingles role that they could use as an upgrade. But free agents, as we've kind of come to come to see, don't really have a a wandering eye towards towards Utah, and that that kind of sucks for them. But but that's the way it is. So looking at the rookie of the year, David, it's this is a two horse race. It's Luca and Trey Young. Which way are you leaning? See, I disagree with everything you said to preface this award. It is a one-man race, and his name is Luca, and I don't really have that much more to say about it. He's an all-star. Like, like it's Luca, and we're moving on. Like, he's outstanding. He's exceptional. He's a future MVP, probably future NBA champion. Dallas bamboozled Atlanta with that trade. 
Luka Doncic. I may I may name my first kid Luka. <laughs> I mean, this dude is just setting the league on on fire. Luka Dixon. I kind of like the ring of that. Yeah, I agree with pretty much everything you said. It, it ostensibly is a two horse race, but it's Luka's going to win it. If it were looking at just from the second half of the season, from the All Star break on, you could make the argument that Trey has been more impressive and has put up better numbers, but. Since the second Luka stepped into the NBA, his rookie season, he's been basically a borderline all-NBA guy. And there are not many players, quite frankly, in league history that could say that. Yeah, Their efficiency is pretty much the same across the board, aside from free throws, where Trey is a little little bit, uh, he's shooting a little bit better. But Luka's also, I feel like, is asked. Actually, that's not fair, because they both are asked to do a lot. Yeah, I think we're on the same page. It's, it's Luca's award, and people who are clamoring for Trey Young, I think, uh, I think they're trying to make a little bit out of nothing. And, and this has nothing to do with Trey Young. The dude has played really well, basically post. I want to say like really December and January. He had a really slow start to the season, but he, he's really figured it out. And Trey Young, I think, will be an All Star in this league. But I feel like it's, it's what you're saying. It was so dominated Luca for this award that it just the conversation was it's so boring and it's just not the way that the sports media landscape is now with the debate shows. Well, you can't debate the rookie of the year. If there's only one answer, then it's not a debate. And like, you, and, and then you can't talk about it. So it feels that the, the debate about Trey young is mainly coming from people just to have something to talk about for this award, because while Trey young has been really good, he just isn't the rookie of the year. And Atlanta just still has so much work to do f- on that team. Well, Dallas really, obviously, Porzingis now has all this legal stuff going on, but they just seem like that they're in a better spot and a better free agent destination than Atlanta. If Atlanta were able to win the lottery, which because of Trey Young's recent success, they it looks unlikely. They've mm-hmm. kind of been on a tear of late, surprisingly, given their, their slow start. But if you could form a young core around John Collins, Kevin Herter, Trey Young, and Zion Williamson, that's a that's a frightening foursome. Yeah, for sure. So if the lottery odds played in their favor, that would be that'd be a spectacle. But I think the MVP race this year is a little bit, in my eyes, analogous to the rookie of the year race. You had a candidate who got off to a little bit of a slow start and then another one who's kind of been steady and consistent all season. But the one who got off to the slow start is surging of late, and that's James Harden. So between between James Harden and Giannis, who who's your MVP for, for the 2018-2019 season? I think that it it's James Harden, and by the slightest of slight hairs, mainly because during the early parts of the season, Houston was really struggling. And Chris Paul was out with an injury, and it looked like Houston was going was collapsing again. The Game 7 hangover was hitting them, and that they were not the same team. And Harden put the team on his back and went on that incredible scoring streak that he's really kept up kind of the whole season, but that's when it started. And willed the Rockets not only back into playoff contention, but back into Western Conference title contention, really. And because of that, how he's just willed his team from almost not from a lottery situation to they might make the finals is what gets him 
that award by the Sledgehammers because mainly I think that personally the Bucks have had such a great year throughout that Giannis hasn't really had to have that superhero moment that we all want from an MVP where the team is struggling, guys are hurt, and Giannis says, this is my moment, I'm taking this team to the promised land, we're getting the one seed, whatever, whatever it may be. I just feel like Harden was forced to do that, and he rose to the occasion while Giannis, I don't want to say it's been easing, easy because no season is easy. Every season has a lot of adversity, no matter what level you play at. I think that just Giannis just hasn't had that type of MVP moment this year is mainly what I'm trying to say. Well, Harden has. I'm going with Giannis. And James Harden has been sensational, like you said. Some of these stats are ridiculous. Let me just, I wrote down a couple of these. He has more games with more than 50 points than fewer than 25. He's averaging more than 40 points per game in the second night of a back-to-back. And he's scoring the most points in the league on a per-game basis since Jordan 32 years ago with over 36 a game. So all of that is true, but it's also true that the Rockets started 11-14 and this season and they were better with Harden off the court than on it through early December. And you mentioned the Chris Paul injury. The, the notion that they struggled because of injuries, that's, that's kind of false. Because they started 11-14, and 14, and shortly thereafter, Chris Paul got hurt and Clint Capella got hurt. And then Harden went bonkers. So that's something to keep in mind. It's, it's part, part of these struggles were Harden's own doing. So I, I'm not sure it's fair to credit him for climbing out of a hole that he dug himself. And then yep. from the Bucks' perspective, I, I totally understand what you're saying in terms of Giannis hasn't had that MVP moment. He hasn't put the team on his back, per se, in the same fashion that Harden has, although that, that in itself is debatable. But he's just been steadily excellent all season. Last year, the Bucks won 44 games and finished 7th in the East. And this season, it looks like, I mean, they're going to be the number one seed and they're going to win 60-plus games. The, the one thing I did struggle with, though, just kind of picking Giannis, because like I said, it's close with Harden and it, it's really a coin flip. The, the impact of Mike Budenholzer, so it's his first season with the Bucks. I feel like he, his coach of the year candidacy and Giannis's MVP candidacy are intertwined in a sense. And it's hard to distinguish where is the is the are the Bucks so much better this season because Giannis took the leap, or are they so much better this season because Coach But like Budenholzer is now their coach and he's able to space the floor for Giannis and implemented his scheme, which has allowed the Bucks to thrive. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I do think they're they're both factors that are playing into why the Bucks have been so successful this season. And then the other thing to point out is just defensively, Giannis is he's in the defensive player of the year conversation. He's not going to win it, but he'll get some votes. And I think that's worth something, just his ability to impact the game on the defensive end. Here, you know, I love I love the fact that you held me accountable. I love that because you're right. The Rockets were really struggling with everyone in the lineup. But when Paul and Capella got hurt, it was almost like Armageddon. Like they might it was like they were talking about, like, should they just tank for Zion? And 
that's when Harden had that moment. I think that another interesting thing when you just talk about these two players and their respective MVP candidacies, because you're saying a lot of really good things about Giannis. I think that Giannis, between the two players, is that why I think Harden also gets the slight edge right just right now, is that Harden is changing, I feel like, the way that the game is played with the step-back threes and the way he draws fouls and just his style of play, I feel affects the league and is changing the way that teams and individual players play more than Giannis. I feel that Giannis has changed a lot about the NBA, but just the way that he physically plays, I don't think is changing the league, which is something I think really interesting about Harden. I mean, both players are in, like, D'Antoni's system was built for Harden. Yeah. Budenholzer's system was built perfectly for Giannis. The, the other thing I struggled with was the minutes because James Harden has shouldered a much higher workload and that in itself is valuable, just being there for his team and being able to be counted on for 37-ish minutes a night where Giannis is somewhere like in the 32-33 range. And I'm not really sure it's fair to penalize Giannis for his team's dominance and success when he's a large part of it. And if you look at their numbers and, you know, set set like a baseline of like, say, per 36 or however the case may be, per however many possessions, and you line up their numbers, they're very similar. And one team is first in the East and the other is third in the West. And it's, it's not all about wins. We saw Russell Westbrook win the MVP when his team finished sixth in the Western Conference. But I also think that counts for something as well as the fact that as much as this shouldn't be the case, and you you mentioned it earlier when we were talking about Defensive Player of the Year, Giannis fits the narrative, and because Harden won it last year, voters might be a little reluctant to vote him a back-to-back MVP because he would be joining a short list in, in terms of NBA history of guys who, who have won the award two seasons in a row. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because Harden also had back-to-back runner-up runner, <coughs> runner finishes as well where you definitely could have made the argument that he should have won those awards too. So I think it's just really interesting. It's the the back-to-back MVP. It feels like two for MVP is the most that they'll go in a row. And it feels maybe that the NBA and their voters reward Harden just for the scoring numbers and the way that he was able to save the Rockets from the lottery, even though, as you said, he was responsible for putting them in that position to begin with. And I think next year it's going to be Giannis without a doubt. But I just think it shows that when you have a debate that that's so close, that it's just this just so good for just the league in general to have two players dominating the narrative right now for great things that they're doing on the court because it makes me excited for the playoffs because when you think about LeBron's not in the playoffs, who is the average fan going to want to watch? Giannis. Who's going to get the ratings? Yeah, they're going to want to watch Giannis. And they're going to watch Harden because he's going to play against the Warriors. And But Harden's going to get talked about a lot more than I feel like Giannis will, good and bad. Because there's a lot of people who love the way Harden plays, but then there's a lot of people who really dislike it. 
I've been on the record here saying it's not my favorite brand of basketball to watch, but you got to admire the production he has. No, I, I love just the way he goes about what he does. It's I've said it before, but it's it's one of those situations where you know what he's going to do. He's going to just rock the cradle, try and put you to sleep, and then hit you with that step back. And it's a matter of stop me if you can. And in most instances, they can't. And that is super impressive to watch. So so you're, you're team Harden. I'm team Giannis, although I'm very close. Are there any other things you're keeping an eye on in the last, what is it, week of the regular season before, before the playoffs? Yeah, uh, I'm looking at everything around the Lakers. I think that they're just the most interesting storyline story for a lot of reasons. You have the LeBron situation. You have this really unfortunate Lonzo Ball situation with the big baller brand and one of the founding members of that company and one of his really good family friends stole money from him, apparently, and that's a whole big thing, and you just feel really bad for Lonzo and that whole situation, the whole Ball family. So that's been a really big thing, and obviously you have Brandon Ingram's health concerns as well because the Lakers are the team that everyone thought would be in the playoffs and also just going into this offseason as a target destination for free agents. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that they strike out again. And if they do strike out on all the big-time free agents, where do they go from here? That's a great question. I think th- they have two tracks. They can either go the track where they hit a home run and tr- hopefully you know, sign Kawhi and maybe go after Bradley Beal. But there's also the alternative. Anthony Davis is also in that conversation. But the alternative route where they strike out on all fronts and then they're forced to possibly overpay for Jimmy Butler and then offer Boogie a, a massive contract. And I, I don't, I'm not sure if DeMarcus Cousins and Jimmy Butler are two guys that are going to age very well. Hey, Adrian, how about just get along and coexist? <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're two very abrasive personalities. There's no question about that. But the, the, the window for LeBron and for him to win in L.A. is is small. And so they need guys now. And so maybe they're willing to, you know, eat some bad contracts on the back end to be very competitive for the next two to three years. I think their path to relevancy and path to contention this coming season is do whatever it takes to get Anthony Davis and try and sign – I mean, maybe a Kemba Walker if you have the space. You're not going to be able to trade for a Bradley Beal once you once you get AD. But if, if they can trade for AD and then sign uh, an impactful guard type, I think they'll be on the path to contention in the Western Conference, especially if KD leaves Golden State. But the, the one thing I'm keeping an eye on, just going toward, uh, forward for the rest of this season in the final week, I want to see who the Denver Nuggets match up with in the first round because I think they are ripe for being upset. I, yeah. In just about any scenario, I, I'm not sure I see Denver getting out of the first round, which is crazy to say. But to me, they're no different than the 60-win Hawks team from a couple years ago that got blasted in the playoffs. They great regular season team, but I'm just not sure when a, when a team has – ample time to think of ways to abuse Nikola Jokic in the pick and roll. 
I, I think they're going to take advantage of that. And just the Western Conference is so loaded. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And then the bottom of the East as well, the the, the Pistons look like they're going to get in. But between the the Magic, the Nets, there's a, I mean, the Hornets are probably done. But it's a jumbled mess down there with the Heat thrown in too. And it'll be interesting to see because a team like the Nets, I think they, they've kind of proven themselves with Kenny Atkinson this year as a potential landing spot for free agents this year, similarly to the to the Clippers, where they have a bunch of very good role players. D'Angelo Russell has taken that step this year as a potential running mate with a with another superstar. But if they can make the playoffs and just, you know, go into these free agency meetings and say, Hey, we made we made the playoffs last season and we just we're missing that one piece to take us over the top. I think it's very important for them to make the playoffs this season. Yeah, absolutely. I think D'Angelo Russell is no longer a role player. He's an all-star. He's a running mate. I've talked about on this podcast before. I think Durant should go to Brooklyn. I think it makes the most sense on the court, off the court. And Brooklyn has all their own picks. So not only can they have the cap space to go out and sign a guy like Kevin Durant, but they have the picks to go out and other pieces to go out and get another all-star and then the nets might be the top in the east i think it'd be really interesting as you were saying about the nuggets i think your point about just how loaded the west is i think it's unfair to just compare them to that hawks team and unfair to say that the hawks got blasted because lebron was blasting everybody like the hawks did well in the playoffs but they're as game of thrones coming back their their watch ended when lebron walked in lebron's the the night king of the NBA just comes in and just destroys everyone. I think it's unfair to compare them to the Hawks, but if they have the coach of the year, maybe they have to get to the second round to, for him to win coach of the year, as I was predicting. But Is there any chance that Mike Malone gets Dwayne Casey'd and wins coach of the year, and then the Nuggets get chopped first round and he's looking for work? No. I think Malone comes back, but I think there's a chance that he wins coach of the year and gets beat in the first round but the last thing that i'm looking for before we wrap up the pod is i mentioned it before breaking news lebron is not in the playoffs but guess who is in the playoffs kyrie irving my favorite story from this whole season i wouldn't i I shouldn't say favorite one of my favorites was when kyrie said that he called lebron to apologize for like the way he was acting in Cleveland or whatever the quote was. And apparently Kevin Love was at this dinner too when LeBron got the call. Suspicious? I think so. However, I want to see the relationship between LeBron and Kyrie on social media and in the playoffs. Sorry, on social media and through the real media during the Celtics playoff run. Because if, let's say Kyrie has 38 one game and LeBron tweets something and, Le- and Kyrie responds, that's just going to fuel the rumors of a Kyrie-LeBron reunion even more than are already out there. I'm really interested to see how they interact with each other because I think that this may be a hot take that there's a 10 to 25% chance Kyrie signs for the Lakers next year. David, I love it. And we were, so I was struggling to think of a, a guard to play alongside LeBron and AD, if they were to trade for for Anthony Davis, Kyrie would be that guy. And Luke Walton sounds like he's getting fired. We can just you know hi- hire Ty Lue and get the whole get the whole crew back together. You know, I mean, if Ty Lue 
gets another head coaching job. What does that say about the state of the NBA? I don't disrespect Tyloo. He won a, he won an NBA finals. True. He he's an NBA champion, but there's he's a champion, but that doesn't make him a good coach. You, you know what I'm saying? That's fair. That's fair. That's <laughs> so fair. the fact that he gets another job so quickly and a lot of guys who are really good coaches don't get the opportunity to then go coach LeBron again is just shows just the power of relationships and and networking and knowing the right people in life. All right. That'll do it for episode 15 of the Double Double. Any parting words, Dave? Yeah, we got to do a couple shout outs. My brother commits, decided on Sarah Lawrence College. Could be playing up there. It's great. Great decision. Happy for him. Shout out to him, my brother Michael. And then unfortunately, as Coach Sass of Pratt texted us this week, he was three for three out of four on his final four picks. So we have to give him the justice and props that he deserves for nailing those picks. And because we were definitely way off. I was over four. Yeah. I was one for four. So right in the middle, right where you want to be. Uh but, but Coach Sass dominated those predictions, three out of four. Obviously, no one could have predicted Auburn. I don't think even Charles Barkley predicted Auburn. <laughs> so, Coach Sass, I know you're listening. Big time. This is why we have you on. You're a college basketball expert, and you're just delivering on just great predictions, great analysis. So, props to you. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or Spotify or SoundCloud, however you listen. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the Final Four and the National Championship on Monday, and and we'll talk to you guys next week. So take care and make it a great day.